0: When Sonalia was a young man, he lived with his family in Suva, the capital city of Fiji. He was the youngest of 10 children and he had modest ambitions in life.
1: I took up arts in high school because I wanted to be a teacher. Later, I discovered that my father also had plans for me. He said he wouldn't support my university cost if I didn't do marine engineering.
0: Sonalia did as his father asked but he found himself struggling with his courses. It was at this point, he was presented with an interesting option. Why not work on a deep sea fishing vessel? His friends were doing it and it paid well.
1: The talk of easy money and the promise of money to support my large family, it convinced me to join long line fishing vessel as crew. Besides my absence meant my family would have one less mouth to feed. I was 19 years old then.
0: Sonali spent years working on fishing vessels and is now suffering from arthritis, back pain, joint pain, bad migraines, and associated injuries from many years of hard, excessive labour.
1: On this vessel, I saw how rules and regulation were never followed. There was no safety procedures practiced. There was no care for crew and their environment. At the end of the trip, we feel like zombies. Our bodies were overworked and pushed beyond the limits by sleepless nights and fatigue. 10 to 12 hours, howling work, all manual work. From shooting, baiting, gutting and stacking. There was never extra pay for extra hours we worked.
0: That was part of an account from Sonalia, who, as a young man in Fiji, fell into a life of difficult and often exploitative work aboard foreign-flagged fishing vessels. The name has been changed, the words are being read by a proxy, but the account is real. From Latrobe Asia and Winrock International, this is The Catch. Hello, I'm Beck Strading, the director of La Trobe Asia. And in this mini series, we'll be hearing about the problem of modern day slavery and forced labor in the offshore fishing industry in the Asia Pacific region. This is part one, recruitment. I'm joined in this by Dr. Sally Yeh, a Tracy Banavanua Ma fellow at La Trobe University and a human geographer and expert in the human impact of modern day slavery and human trafficking. Thank you for joining me, Sally. Thank you, Beck. Sally, we heard from Sonalia that for these men there could be a promise of a decent job with a good salary. So, if they're being paid, why is it then described as slavery?
2: Well, we're not talking about our traditional understandings of slavery that we associate, for example, with chattel slavery, which is really about the buying and selling of people for labour exploitation. But we're talking about modern day slavery which is defined really by hyper-exploitative working conditions, people being lured to work with false promises about their working conditions, including their salary, where the employers often consider their workers as disposable and easily replaced. That last aspect of disposability is really important because it means that employers can put their workers in extremely hazardous work situations with little care for their health or safety and they can overwork them considerably with little negative impact on the employer.
0: So how is slavery then applied in the context of the fishing industry and why is the industry compelled to resort to slavery?
2: Well, the offshore fishing industry, which means vessels that track out into open waters or international waters and may spend months or even years at sea, This industry has undergone what we might call a crisis of profitability recently, as fuel costs have risen and climate change and overfishing have depleted global fish stocks. So to maintain their profitability, these fishing fleets must cut their costs And one of the main ways they've done this is to resort to recruiting cheap labour to work as fishing crew. What this means in practice is that fishing crew from poor and vulnerable communities in developing countries are recruited as crew under false promises of decent work and a good salary. But when they reach the fishing vessels... It often turns out that they're forced to work up to 20 or 22 hours a day with very little rest, a lack of decent food and inadequate water rations. They might experience physical or sexual abuse at the hands of senior crew, and many die on board the vessels. And most are not paid the salaries that they were initially promised. Many are stuck in these conditions for months or sometimes even for years because the vessels rarely return to port and monitoring and inspections of the vessels is almost non existent.
0: So, you've recently written a report with Associate Professor Christina Stringer from the University of Auckland that looks at the nature of exploitative work practices on these foreign flagged fishing vessels and this is a report that covers fishing vessels in both Indonesia and Fiji. Why did you choose those two countries?
2: Well, Indonesia was chosen mainly because there are an increasing number of media exposés and NGO reports documenting the abuse of Indonesian fishing crew on these foreign vessels. But in contrast, the experiences of Fijian men have not been documented at all in the media or NGO reporting on the problem. So the idea here was to look more closely at the experiences of a group who were assumed not to be prone to exploitation because they're not migrant workers. So you can see we kind of establish this comparison between Fijian men who join crews locally, mainly from Fijian ports, and Indonesian men who join as migrant workers. So we worked closely with SBMI, our Indonesian NGO partner, and Human Dignity Group, our Fijian partner, to solicit very detailed narratives from men in both these countries who've returned from work stints on these foreign vessels. And we did that to understand their experiences in their own words and according to their own frames of reference.
0: Now, because this work is occurring on fishing vessels that are far out to sea, it can be very difficult to monitor what goes on on these fishing vessels. So I'm going to ask this question, aware that there might not be a straightforward answer, but how widespread is the problem?
2: Well, you're absolutely right. It's very difficult to say. Statistics on this are extremely hard to get. That's actually true of any form of modern day slavery or or human trafficking. Gathering quantitative data is a real challenge. For our own research, we didn't do a random sample of returned fishes, which would give us a sort of statistical indication of how widespread the problem is. We targeted those who returned knowing that they had experienced some kind of problem on the vessels. So really it's hard to say how widespread the problem is, But what I can say is that a lot more research is actually needed to give an accurate estimate, at least in my opinion.
0: So what is the situation of these men before they get recruited to work on these fishing vessels and what motivates them to join? Do you think that there is some level of awareness among the men as to what they're getting into or are they really getting into these work? arrangements without any sense of of what is going to happen?
2: It's a complicated issue and, of course, it's not necessarily the same for all of the men. But for the majority of both the Fijian and the Indonesian men that participated in the research, it's really a combination of a certain degree of desperation and also the promise of good money. So the desperation really emerges from extreme economic insecurity coupled with a lack of decent job opportunities and the closing off of other options like higher education for example. Of course this situation has worsened considerably since the onset of covid and and that's another area that requires a lot more research and investigation. For some men, there are also social pressures to fulfil expectations from their families and communities about earning good money and supporting their families. And those social expectations we documented across contexts. Uh, So, you know, for the Fijian men and the Indonesian men alike. You can hear some of the account of Zainuddin, and he's from central Java in Indonesia and grew up very poor as the seventh of nine children. And his account really talks to some of these dimensions of economic security and pressure to be a breadwinner for his family.
3: I was born in Tagal Regency, central Java. I am 36-year-old and I am the seventh of nine children. We come from a low-income family. My brother was working at sea on a fishing vessel when I was in school. When I graduated from high school, I intended to attend a military school in the Air Force, but I was unable to do so due to the expensive registration fees. In June 2001, I started working on an Indonesian-owned fishing boat, operated in Indonesian Sea. My income was only enough to help my family In my family, the older children have to pay for their younger siblings' school fees. My brother had to pay my school fees and I had to pay my sister's school fees as well. My brother who worked on a fishing vessel got pneumonia when he was doing that job. He did not receive any compensation and he had to rest for more than a year. Each day, he consumed three bottles of wild horse milk. Each bottle cost 50,000 Indonesian rupiah. And I had to help to pay for that treatment. I only receive 450,000 Indonesian rupiah per month. I often work overtime because I wanted to help my brother. I send all my salary home and I borrowed money for my living needs on the fishing boats.
0: I mean, I think it's interesting here... Uh, there's very clearly, I think, a sense of expectations around uh, providing for his family in terms of helping with education, helping with the family income. Is that common among men who work on foreign flagged fishing vessels?
2: Yes, it's very common. Zayn Udin's uh, narrative really speaks to some of the key issues or the key motivations that many of the participants recounted in terms of their own reasons for seeking work on foreign fishing vessels. So paying for education for siblings is a really common motivation. Paying for health care and medical costs for family members is also very common. And interestingly for some of the men, It's also about leaving the home and leaving the family in order to lessen the pressure on the household and lessen the pressure on the resources and the expenditure of the household. So, you know, some of the men talk, for example, about when they go and work on the fishing vessels, there's one less mouth to feed in the family. So that's another consideration that many of the men discuss. So all of these expectations around breadwinning, interestingly, are very much applied to male migrant workers, whether it's in the fishing vessel or other forms of precarious work. You don't hear this this kind of account about taking on that breadwinning role as much from female migrant workers, for example.
0: There are other counts, such as that of Dumadi, speak about the frustration of not being able to find employment. In his case, he studied Korean for a year in the hope of finding employment and still had no success.
3: Feeling views and not knowing what to do, I work as a casual construction labourer while looking for information about companies that could dispatch migrant workers to Korea. I often look for information about job vacancies to Korea through Facebook. And finally, someone named Arif contacted me and offered me to work in a factory with a salary of 20 million Indonesian rupiah per month. The offer was very tempting to me, because I was such in a poor state financially.
0: Jumadi was recruited while looking for work on Facebook. Is social media a typical way of getting a job on a fishing vessel, Sally?
2: Yes, it is, Beck. It is one of a number of ways that men can be recruited. Men are often recruited through networks within their local communities, also through local recruiters, often through advertisements in newspapers as well as on social media, as you've already mentioned, and sometimes through direct walk-ins of men to agencies. Labor brokerage for work overseas is actually a massive industry in Indonesia, and freelance recruiters and labor agencies make a huge amount of money through recruitment fees. And sometimes these intermediaries can distort information about the job, but there are others who think they're performing a good service for the men. So it's really quite widespread and complicated and there's no one typical path to recruitment and there's no one typical profile of recruiters or agencies that are involved in placing these men. One of the testimonials from Sarusi who worked on a fishing vessel in Fiji for about 10 years and became a recruiter himself, provides some really interesting insights into the mindset of a recruiter.
1: Each day I checked the boat schedules to see which would be leaving in a week's time. Then I would check with the captain and his crew, my phone, to see if anyone wouldn't be joining the voyage to the sickness or any family commitments. I would then make my contact with potential recruitments. I would call them to explain the conditions of the work, the duration of the trip, and the wages. I would arrange for them to come in the passports. The only document they needed to bring was their passport.
0: Cyrus's account makes recruitment sound relatively straightforward, but I think there is a darker side to this recruitment process, and that perhaps this account doesn't quite get to the complexity around recruiting men for work on these foreign flagged fishing vessels.
2: No, not really. I think one of the problems with the recruitment process, and one of the reasons why. Many of these men's experiences can be classified as human trafficking or forced labour, is because of the deception used to get these men to work on the fishing vessels. Now, there's a number of ways that this can happen. So we can unpack a few of these. Initially, the men are usually given an incorrect perception about what the work and the living conditions will be like on the vessel. And of course, when they reach the vessels, they realise that the things that they've initially been told about their work are simply not true. The conditions are far worse. The salary may not be forthcoming or it may be considerably less than what they expected. So that deception is a very important aspect of the recruitment process. Otherwise, men would simply not be interested in taking this work on. Secondly, there's the contracts involved. And the contracts are really interesting because the contracts stipulate all of the conditions that the men could expect, including salary and so on, as well as the term of their employment. But what tends to happen is that the contracts are substituted whilst the men are en route. So they may sign an initial contract with certain conditions, but maybe at a second agency or in a transit country, they're asked to sign a new contract with different conditions. And these are always to the detriment of the fishermen. And one of the common ways in which the fishermen are caught, if you like, in these situations. They're already in transit. They're already en route to the fishing vessel. They're really told by the recruitment agents that if they don't sign these new contracts, they'll have to make their own way back to their home country, in this case, Indonesia. And that is something that's almost impossible for these men to do, because they've got no way of paying their costs to return home. So really they're forced to sign these new unfair agreements and contracts. So that's another way in which the recruitment process can contribute to and lead to situations of forced labour and slavery on the fishing vessels.
0: We'll be talking more about the nature of the work conditions on those fishing vessels and what the men did not expect in our next episode. Thank you, Sally, for joining us today.
2: You're welcome. Thanks, Beck.
0: You've been listening to The Catch, a podcast mini series produced by Latrobe Asia. And you can find the report on the Latrobe Asia website. Our theme music is Fruition by Edoy. This podcast was developed with the support of the United States Agency for International Development. The views do not necessarily reflect those of USAID. My name is Beck Strading and thank you for listening.